Welcome to the Progressive Money Canada podcast. Worldwide, countries and their citizens are experiencing historic levels of financial debt and a lack of money. Is all this inescapable or is there an underlying systemic factor that we can change? Join your hosts, Ed and Jeff, to explore solutions for correcting our monetary system, the most underappreciated topic of our time. This is Episode 3. Why is it a problem allowing privately owned commercial banks the privilege of creating almost all the money in circulation? So Jeff, to start off, I think people will be motivated to find us by virtue of the fact that they're tired of being in debt, they're tired of seeing their governments chronically in debt, hearing about corporations not having enough money. It seems like in the midst of a modern technological society, in the midst of plenty, we have this strange problem that every entity at every level is in debt. The other aspect of this problem is that the more I look into it, the more I see that the potential for a productive, prosperous society that we have is just extraordinary. I don't think we even realize the potential for creative productivity that we really have, but it's just hamstrung by this whole question of the control of money. How would you approach this topic? Well, I would start with the most important thing, which is that the only way new money comes into existence is if a, a bank thinks it can make a profit. Also, the interest that the banks charge, they do not, they do not create that. And that leaves people struggling at the bottom trying to find the money to pay off the loan. And how do they do that? They have to take a, a loan somewhere else. Um, so it's basically a spiral to the bottom. Uh, you've also got the growth imperative. In order to get those loans, it means that the, the economy has to grow to continue to expand the money supply so that you have to borrow more money to pay off your existing debts. But just by design, it's doomed to fail. It's always the people at the bottom that suffer. And you also have the concentration of wealth. So all the people at the bottom that are you know struggling to survive, all that money, those interest payments, they go to the top. And that's one of the main reasons why we continue to have this huge gap between the very rich and the very poor, and it continues to increase. You also have an unstable banking system. For example, between uh, 1970 and 2010, the International Monetary Fund counted uh, 425 banking, sovereign debt, and monetary crises. And you have the boom and bust cycles that are the result of the existing system. When the conditions are good, everybody's sort of making money, the economy's booming, then banks have a greater tendency to lend money out, which uh, continues to fuel the economy until that credit bubble bursts. And it happens all the time. That's kind of the main ones. All right. Well, let's go back to the first thing that you were talking about, and that is that there is no interest created when they create the money. I think this is something that, that takes a few repetitions to really understand. The way I heard it explained was this. Going back to the, to the case of the mortgage loan, now this is an explanation that I heard by John Termel. He said the word mortgage is composed of law, which is death, of course, and gage. One explanation I heard was that, oh, it's, um, it's like a measure. Uh, so it takes you so long to pay off the mortgage that you're going to be dead by the time you pay it off. But that's not actually the correct explanation. According to John Termel, he says mortgage means a death wager. And he knows about this because he's a, an expert gambler. He knows how casinos work and actually how to beat the bank because he's a good card counter. <laughs> he said it's a death wager for this specific reason. The bank knowingly creates a certain amount of money 
but requires an excess of that amount back to itself in the form of interest. Therefore, the borrowers will be scrambling to make principal payments as well as their interest payments. They will, in effect, steal the money that they need from other players in the system. Just like a game of musical chairs, the last person will be left holding the bag. They will not have enough money to meet both their principal and interest payment, and so they will be knocked out. Foreclosed upon by design, they are at the bottom and, and kicked out of the system. It's a spiral to the bottom. Yeah, it's a, that's a good summary and a good analogy by Turmel. It's also done very well in uh, Paul Grignon's Money is Debt, his video production. And this is something that we could have talked about in the money creation episode where I talked about how money is created and how the balance sheet is expanded. Well, the reverse is also true when the loan is paid back. So the actual principal in the loan, when it's paid back, is taken off of the ledger, um, but the bank gets to keep the interest. Oh, that's interesting. The actual loan instrument is taken off of the books. Right. And of course, that money that this guy took had to come from some other loan. So in essence, it has destroyed money. So in the repayment, that money is no longer in circulation, benefiting people, except that the bank has recouped the interest and that they actually do use to their benefit. Correct. Now, with respect to the unstable banking system and the booms and bust cycle, my understanding of this is that Well, the conventional teaching is that by some strange cosmic law, there's this uh, fluctuation where enterprises are successful and have an upswing and then collapse again. It's the banks that are going to be helping out in the situation to try to, you know, repair things and, and keep things stable. But they've never actually been able to make good on their promise to do away with booms and busts. It seems like the number of financial crises uh, have increased or or persisted ever since the creation, for example, of of the Federal Reserve. The critique is that it's the banking interests that are actually creating the booms and busts, and they do that simply by uh, turning on and off the spigot. They create money by lowering the interest rates and lending into circulation. And then once everyone is comfortable with their interest payments and they're, they're being productive, the banks will raise the interest rate, squeeze the people at the margin. They cannot make their debt service payments and they default and therefore closed on. And people with access to large amounts of cash will go in and buy assets for a discount. Once that is done, they start to lend money again freely. So it's this strange back and forth between high interest rates and low interest rates but according to the critique against the conventional textbook, it's this deliberate action. Yeah, well, it's because when times are good, banks are making bigger profits. And unfortunately, even when times are bad, they make profits, which tells you something. That what's wrong here? You know, it's really the variations are aggravated by private banks because in good times, they get more loans, as you already stated. As they see more opportunities for profit, this boosts the economy further. At some point, you know, leading to economic overheating, asset bubbles is what we see all the time, and a new crisis. Then in times of economic contraction, banks are hesitant to lend money, meaning less money is created precisely at a time when more is needed for economic recovery. Hmm. Well, my understanding is that It's a question of who has the first use of the money. If the Bank of Canada, and we've already established that they can create money out of nothing uh, and inject it, so to speak, directly into Treasury, into government, or they can transfer it in their asset acquisitions to the commercial banks, then 
it's the people who have the use of that money at the highest level who are going to benefit the most before inflation starts to take hold. So in other words, they'll be able to go out and speculate on the stock market. So am I, am I right so far? Yes. <laughs> A resounding yes. Now, here's another thing from that I learned from Termel, and I, I'd like to get your response to this. The conventional wisdom that we get from education and the media and so on is that rising interest rates put a damper on inflation. Termel says no. Rising interest rates actually cause inflation. And he says the reason that happens is because as interest rates go up, as I mentioned, more people will start to default and therefore um, their assets will be seized. They will be foreclosed on. And what that represents is a drop in the actual stock of assets. There's a drop on inventory. And that is the thing that reduces the purchasing power of the money, the fact that there's simply less to buy. Well, I would agree with Termel that rising interest rates do not put a damper on, on inflation. <laughs> we should create that in flying banners because <laughs> we have a future episode on it, maybe a couple of episodes on what's actually causing the current inflation. And very little of it has to do with government spending. The main drivers of inflation are uh, basically corporate greed. That transcends to uh, the oil industry. Energy prices were the main driver. And then all the money that, uh, for example, in Canada, that they pumped into the private banking system, that's what caused our asset inflation. Because if you look at the pandemic, stock market went up through that whole time. And also property prices. You probably would have known when you got your assessment that your property value would have gone up by somewhere in between 20 to 30 percent. A fifth of all the housing in Canada was bought up by investment companies. And that also helped to drive up the price. For example, my own property value went up 27 percent. So that was, to a large degree, fueled by the amount of money that the Bank of Canada is pumping into the uh, financial sector. And the way the Bank of Canada does that is through quantitative easing. And that process, I, I'll just explain briefly, this is the two different functions that I was talking about that the Bank of Canada does. You know, sometimes it creates money for the government, which is a small amount, um, but this $400 billion in settlement balances that the Bank of Canada created for the commercial banking industry sits there in an interest-bearing account. Right now, it's at 3.75%. Those settlement balances, and they are reducing it, quantitative tightening, they call it. They're gradually trying to wind that down and trying to get back to situation normal, where the majority of assets that are held are just to counterbalance the amount of currency that's in circulation. But that's how banks make increased liquidity in times like this. And of course, when you look at all the banks are still making big profits while everybody else is suffering. Well, that tells you right there without knowing anything in detail that there's something wrong with the system. So the interest that they get from those settlement balances that are held at the Bank of Canada, they can use that money any way they want, just like you and I would. It's an income for them. So when they get in the trouble and in speculative investments, then you're saying the Bank of Canada steps in and actually makes them whole. Is that correct? Yes. The Bank of Canada is called the lender of last resort. And so it has a dual function. It's there as a backstop for the uh, private banking industry, but it's also there as a backstop for the government. And again, banks, that's what they're notorious for is they, they speculate because they want to maximize profit and they know that nobody ever goes to jail. There's no accountability for it in the end. And they know that the Bank of Canada is there to bail them out whenever they need. I'll give you another example. There's a monetary expert, a guy named Bernard Lyotier. He estimated in 2010 
that of the $4 trillion traded daily in currency transactions, that's called arbitrage, right? Out of the $4 trillion daily in currency transaction, only 2% was of significance for the real economy for importing and exporting goods and services. The other 98% was used purely for speculation. Is there anything else that we haven't discussed? And what is the essential point that you want people to take away? Well, the essential point is that the the uh, financial system is rigged to to benefit uh, the larger financial institutions. Now, I've covered um, several different issues, so it's multiple. It's not just one, but the, the main, the most important one is that the only way that money can come into existence, um, you know, without government funding, is through a bank that believes that it can make a profit, and that should be the money. Privilege should be uh, brought back to the people. And that's why, you know, one of the proposals in PMC is to take that money creation privilege away from banks. And I can get into more specifics on that in a later issue. Well, Jeff is offline now. So what I'll do is summarize the points that we covered today. One, there's a chronic problem of high indebtedness, whether at government, corporate, or household levels. Number two, the corollary is that there's an extraordinary but unrealized potential for a productive and prosperous society. Number three, the root of the problem, banks lend only for the motive of profit. Four, banks do not create money needed to repay the interest. Five, people at the lowest socioeconomic levels struggle to find the money for interest payments. Six, there's a growth imperative, a structural necessity to expand the money supply. Seven, there's an increasing wealth disparity. Eight, There's a chronic banking and monetary crisis with boom and bust cycles. Number nine, John Termel's point, the mortgage is quite literally a death wager. Number 10, loan principal paid back is money removed from circulation, but the banks keep the interest. Number 11, the fallacy of the business cycle. Number 12, John Termel, again, states that rising interest rates do not put a damper on inflation, but actually cause it. 13. The financial institutions have $400 billion in settlement balances held at the Bank of Canada. They use the interest on that money to engage in speculative investment. This is inflationary, the cause of asset bubbles. 14. One example, 20% of real estate purchases recently were institutional in nature. 15. The Bank of Canada provides a backstop to cover losses by either commercial banks or the federal government. 16. Monetary expert Bernard Lyotaire reported that levels of Forex arbitrage of $4 trillion traded daily, 98% is speculative, not for the exchange of goods and services. Those are 2010 figures. In summary, the essence of the problem is that the financial system is rigged to benefit the financial institutions. The money creation privilege should be taken away from the banks and returned to the people. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe, check the show notes, and visit our website, progressivemoney.ca.